Welcome to Australian Hiker, your online hiking resource. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 104 of the Australian Hiker Podcast, and in today's episode, we're going to be discussing the history of national parks. Now, if you live in Australia, or for that matter, many other countries in the world, then you'll be familiar with the concept of national parks. In fact, many of the walks we do as hikers around this country, and in fact, a lot of the countries in the world, can be found in national parks. But what are they, and how did they come about? In this podcast, we're going to provide a brief overview of the history of national parks and what they mean from an Australian perspective. We hope you enjoy. Let's look at the history of national parks from a worldwide perspective to start with. The first national park in the world was Yellowstone National Park, which was listed in 1872. But from an Australian perspective, we weren't too far behind with Royal National Park becoming the world's second national park and Australia's first in 1879. Within around about 30-odd years, by 1916, every other Australian state had designated at least one national park. And if you go to the written version of this podcast, we'll have a list of what those were. Currently, there are now more than 500 national parks covering more than a million hectares and while that sounds a lot, from an Australian perspective, that's around about 3 to 4% of the country. So it's not a huge amount of space as such. Now, why do we have national parks? I've got a background in landscape architecture, and I like to uh, understand why people enjoy uh, using spaces. So the concept of placemaking, creating places or spaces for people that they like interacting with. And sometimes this is successful and sometimes not. The concept of parks <laughs> was something that uh, originally came from Europe, uh, the royalty, in fact, in uh, Europe, who had large tracts of land set aside for their own enjoyment um, and entertainment. Now, in the 1700s, with the, uh, the rise of uh, the wealthy gentry, this increased the desire to have idyllic locations manufactured, in fact, to your own specific standard. So we had uh, the early landscape architects reshaping entire landscapes. And in the case of uh, uh, Capability Brown, he even uh, moved or altered the course of rivers to fit in with the desired design. And the whole point was about um, showing off how wealthy you were, wasn't it? I mean, it was, you know, I've got so much money, I can change the landscape. <laughs> So it was a little bit different to what we think of today in terms of uh, conserving the landscape. And I think still, still while we're still away from Australia, um, we have a, a very um, fixed picture of what we think the, the British landscape looks like, but it looks, like, looks nothing like it did 1,000, 1,500 years ago where much of Britain was actually forest. Uh, certainly the impact of humans has changed that quite dramatically. 
While the opportunity for the wealthy to access green space has always been available, this was not so for the poor inner-city residents. And particularly during the uh, the industrialised area where the poorer classes worked long hours, uh, often in very poor areas, um, you know, the pollution, not so much in Australia, but the pollution was higher and the quality of life was, so, was not so good. Um, and this... As, as we pushed our way through this, um, this industrial revolution, we eventually turned ourselves to the desire for most people to get out into the environment and have a bit of access in green space. Now, in the USA, this often uh, was found in the form of cemeteries, which were large green centres in cities that were often void of any colour. Um, and... Uh, from an Australian perspective, because we are a relatively small country uh, with small population and small cities by com- uh, comparison to US and European standards, we did have access to good public uh, spaces quite readily. Australia's oldest national park, Royal, um, is just on 36 kilometres from the uh, the centre of the city. Um, and the national park to the north, which is Kuringrai Chase National Park, which was declared in 1894, is even closer at 32 kilometres. At the time of its declaration in 1879, Royal National Park uh, was close to the sea, the outer suburbs of Randwick and Marrickville, uh, and Alexandria and Waterloo were just names on a map. If you try uh, declaring a national park that close to a major city with land prices these days, it just doesn't happen. Uh, so it was what that- a great kind of um foresight though really i mean you know and and, um i I would have imagined the the pressure over time to move the boundary of the national park you know north or south depending on whether you're looking at uh, karingai or royal national park would have been huge the pressure would have been huge so you know that was I, I don't know I, I for me this is this is a great uh, achievement and I, I that's a Sydney based thing but I guess if you if you went to any of the cities in Australia you'd find something similar and I think at that stage in particular even though we say 36 kilometers and don't really think much about it um, when you think the only other options in those days were train um, boat uh, or walking uh, and you know uh, certainly you know, you know, that was a long distance in those days. So I think it was probably thought to be fairly safe that, you know, we're never going to be able to that, have the city be that far out um, as it, you know, the, really the edge of the Sydney city does really sort of uh, butt onto the Royal National Park these days. The thing, as we just mentioned, to consider at the time that Royal was declared is that the automobile didn't exist and Sydney siders really depended on rail transport. So in the case of Royal National Park, there was a, uh, a rail line that ran uh, from the city uh, to, uh, uh, to the actual national park itself. Uh, but that only opened around about um, a seven or eight years after uh, Royal National Park was declared. Uh, so until that time, the average person wasn't going to be able to access uh, that park too readily. Royal National Park, which may surprise a lot of people, wasn't originally set up as a conservation area. Um, And in fact, the main uh, reason for the existence of Royal National Park at that time was one for recreation. Um, So 
if you go to the National Heritage List, and Royal National Park is on the National Heritage List, um, it identifies one of the main reasons for listing as the permanent reservation of a large natural area for the purposes of public re recreation. And this also marked the development of Australia's national park system of protected areas. National parks, um, if you go to the various parks websites around the country, New South Wales Parks website provides the easiest to find definition of a national park, which they, they set out as being areas of land protected for their unspoilt landscapes, outstanding or representative ecosystems. Australian native plants and animals and places of natural or cultural significance. In addition to their role in conservation, national parks provide opportunities for public nature appreciation, well-being, enjoyment and valued scientific research. That's a lot of activities going on in one space, isn't it? It is, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, now, the Australian Capital Territory is reasonably unique, having only one national park, which is Namagee National Park. Um, but on a scale of parks, it's actually quite large, taking up 46% of the Australian Capital Territory. Well, Australian Capital Territory is not that big. It's not. It's <laughs> not. It's not. But when you, when you think that you know, half of it is National Park, it's pretty good. While Namagi National Park helps to preserve uh, Canberra's nature, its main purpose for being is protecting Canberra's water supply. In fact, the proposed land area for the ACT initially considered taking in the entire water catchment, which would have provided us with a territory that looked a bit tooth-shaped. And if you go to the written version of this article, uh, I'll have a copy of the original map up online to show you what the proposal was. As it is, uh, some of our dams are contained within New South Wales and we're reliant on working in with New South Wales to protect these areas. We do have other things called state reserves, state forests, and yeah, and that often can be a bit confusing. So again, as we mentioned, it's I struggle to find a lot of information on the state park websites, and New South Wales provided the best best definition with these ones. So state parks in New South Wales, uh, they are there to offer locations for fun and affordable activities such as picnics, barbecue, camping, swimming, water sports, bushwalks in serene and tranquil locations <laughs> which are maintained and cared for by lands, uh, by the lands department as opposed to the parks department. Someone spent a lot of time crafting that one. I think they you. did. I think they did. <laughs> State conservation areas, and there's a couple of different conservation areas in um, uh, New South Wales. Um and these, in addition to national uh, national parks, there's also state conservation areas managed as uh, Aboriginal areas or state conservation areas. So these are importance to the state as opposed to a national level of, of, of uh, conservation protection. The other type of reserve that we might be familiar with is state forests. And state forests are just that. They are run by forestry departments at some point, they will be logged. Uh, but because these things are such a long-term process that are there for 20, 30, 40, 50 years before the logging actually occurs, there's often good good uh, recreation op uh, opportunities available. Main thing is don't get too attached to them because at some point, logging is going to come through and change the entire experience. Yeah, I remember many decades ago going to a remote country town to visit uh, state forests uh, as a botanist and collect 
some special plants we were interested in and uh, uh, we stayed at the local pub that was full of loggers. Uh, we stood out like you would not believe and, uh, yeah, there was definitely a difference in values, let me just say that. <laughs> now we're going to talk about the do's and don'ts in national parks. As a general rule, there's no national standard for what should and shouldn't occur in national parks, but there does seem to be a, a national set of guidelines that the states tend to adhere to. So as an example, as a general rule, um, there are no dogs allowed in national parks. Uh, you know, the, yes. the, Listen, no <laughs> dogs. <laughs> I saw, saw a dog on a lead in a national park the other day. It's like, seriously. Um, and I think one of the things from that is that there's two issues there. And I, I've, I've seen the same thing as well where um, I've seen dogs running off leash in national parks, chasing the kangaroos. Now, there's two issues here. One is they can injure the kangaroos. I've seen some very big kangaroos around and they can do some serious damage to dogs. So it's, it's a bit of protection for, for both, of the, both the animals and for the, uh, the, the, the pets as well. But, you know, I mean, also in those areas around uh, water catchments, um, you know, there, there's a reason why um, domestic animals um, are not wanted in uh, those areas uh, in terms of contamination of water and um, those sorts of issues as well. So it's not just the danger to the dog. Um, there are all sorts of things that people need to think about. And, and when we say no dogs, it's probably best to say no no domestic pets. So this does include cats. Um, <laughs> see, that's funny. I haven't. Well, yeah, I haven't <laughs> seen. I haven't seen a cat on a lead in a national park. I have to say that. Um, I do. I do have friends that do take their their cats for walks on leads, and they they are conscious about where they can and can't take it. I think this is something that's a bit more uh, amenable to the US uh, hiking with dogs. And even hiking with cats in the US seems to be more of a thing than it is here in Australia. And I think we've just been so, becoming so ingrained of not taking domestic animals into parks. Uh, yeah, and, and sometimes, as I said, people do take the dogs in occasionally. The other one that tends to be pretty typical in most national parks, or at least parts of the parks, is no fires. Um, and, you know, and, the, and then the parks that do allow fires... When there's a total fire ban, that means no fires, and in some cases, no fires of any type, including uh, 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 fuel stoves. So that happened when we were on the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail, and uh, I think it was just one day. I think was it one day? It was twenty one twenty four hour period, and we were in a national park. We were in a national park, um, and uh, you you couldn't use. A stove of any kind, so uh, including the jet boils and anything else that we had. So um, I think I recall one of the podcasts we were talking about where we tested out some of the um, the freeze dried uh, meals, and we had to eat one cold, <laughs> very cold. <laughs> well, mm, wasn't really cold because we couldn't get the water that cold, but. Yeah, it certainly wasn't cooked and warm and, and cosy as, as those meals would normally be. Now, a number of national parks will also have entry fees associated with them. And if they don't have entry fees, they more than likely will have camping fees. 
So in the ACT, over, the, over Easter, I've just been encamped in the Bimbury Wilderness, which is part of the Namaji National Park area. And there, are, there, are, there is a permit, although it's a free permit, um, but this designed to make sure that there aren't too many people in that, area, in that pristine area having a major impact. And partly that's because this is a water catchment area. And I think that's another thing. I mean, we, we know um, from experience that uh, either by talking to people or talking to the rangers that a lot of people don't get the permit, even if it's free, um, and they definitely don't get the permit if they have to pay. And sometimes it's a really small amount. But I think, you know, for me, it's about the rangers being able to monitor the number of people and manage the impact. Um, and, you know, particularly if it's free, it does matter. It still does matter. Yeah, and I think, I think it's also a safety aspect as well. I mean, the week before I did my hike over Easter, they were burning off in, in uh, Namaji National Park and they had a lot of areas identified um, as being out, out of uh, access because the, the fires were burning through. And they deliberately do that before Easter, so uh, the the park areas are ready for the Easter period. Um, but what it means is, if they know that people are in the area uh, and um, something's gone wrong, they can say, "Right, we've got ten people in here. We need to notify them," rather than having to put a blanket news and and hoping that people are aware that they've they've read it. So it's it's often a safety issue that's associated with this as well. I talked to the Chief Ranger of Namaji National Park a couple of years ago uh, about why don't they charge park entry for Namaji National Park. And um, the response came back is the cost of putting boom gates in, of having a ranger sitting in a boom gate collecting fees, or was more, more than it was worth in fee collection to, to actually do that. Probably one of the best known parks in, uh, uh, the, or some of the best known parks in Australia are the Alpine parks, Kosciuszko, and a number of the Victorian parks, where you do pay quite high priced uh, entry fees, but they have to pay for clearing of the roads uh, from snow, uh, maintaining it. There's a quite a high demand over the winter period in particular. So the park fees and park access fees in wintertime in particular are quite high. Um, but that's because of the, the high demand and high usage and high cost of running the parks at that time. And they're also a little bit more flexible too in how, how you can access um, your permit. So, you know, you can get them at local stores if the, um, if the ranger uh, station isn't open and um, if you don't have it on your car, um, the rangers will come around and have a look and put a note on your car and say you've got, you know, I don't know how many hours, um, but, you know, by the end of the day, make sure you pay your permit. Um, and they do it that way rather than have necessarily have somebody sitting and watching all the time. So a closed ranger station is not a good sign. <laughs> you still have to pay. <laughs> I'll put a, an image up in the written version of this article. Something I've been seeing more and more over the last couple of years is what amounts to parking meters in national parks and you go through as you're entering the park, you buy your day access ticket. Now, most people probably ignore that uh, and just drive straight through and don't even think about it. Uh, but there's always a risk that if a ranger finds your car and you don't have your permit, um, that 
you know, you will potentially get a fine out of it. So it's something you do need to be aware of. And, and the money does go to supporting the park system itself. Yeah, we've, we've seen those in New South Wales and South Australia and it's also the way of not just uh, paying for your access but you can also pay your um, camping fee um, in the same way. Um, the other thing is look but don't touch and, and that, that includes don't feed the wildlife, don't collect firewood. Now, the parks that do allow you to use firewood will let you collect firewood, providing you're burning it on site. But what this means is don't go in there with a the trailer and collect the winter's worth worth of firewood. Um, some parks do allow that. Or cut a tree down. Cut a, tree down. <laughs> cut a dead tree down. Don't do it. Or cut a live tree down. Yeah. <laughs> um, some parks do allow firewood collection at certain times of the year uh, and from certain areas. Uh, but, again, this is going to be on a park-by-park -park basis. Um, the thing you need to consider that all plants and animals in parks protection are protected. Now, this doesn't include feral animals and weed species, unless we're talking about New South Wales here and there is a big argument going on at the moment about whether there should be horses allowed in the Alpine National Parks. Brumbies. Brumbies, yeah. Now, this is an ongoing discussion. Um, there's uh, um, sides to both arguments. Um, my comment here would be, having just walked from Kyandra to Thawa, I counted approximately 150 horses and I basically walked through horse dung almost the entire way. There are a lot of horses and a lot, a lot of evidence of horses around. Yeah, and his hiking boots need some serious cleaning now. Um, what it comes down to is leave the park as you find it. And this includes the concept of pack it in, pack it out. If you bring rubbish with you, don't just throw it on the ground. Parks these days, have become it's become very common not to have rubbish bins. Um, and they've dis discovered that if people, if there's a rubbish bin there, even if it's full, people will just throw rubbish and the, the bin will overflow. Where there are no bins, people will typically take the rubbish home with them. Uh, but, yeah, you should never leave the rubbish in the park because it just reduces the enjoyment for others. It's also a nicer experience for the rangers as well, not having to clean up other people's rubbish. Uh, and if you need to go to the toilet away from provided facilities, it should be at least 100 metres away from water supplies, campsites and trails. Uh, and for us on the Larapenta Trail in 2016, wasn't a good experience because people didn't follow that. Uh, and we were hiking at the end of the season. So in two areas, not it, it was only in two areas, but it wasn't a a pleasant surprise uh, because people were were burying their toilet waste under a rock, uh, not, not not actually digging a hole. And right right at the campsite too. Now, as I said, most of these rules um, are pretty much standard across Australia. Um, but there will also be um, uh, rules that are local to some areas. So as we mentioned, some uh, uh, while many parks will allow campfires, there is still a preference for fuel stoves. And the reason for this is if you're doing a fire with sticks and leaves and wood, it has the potential to get out of control. Um, and I must admit, I've... As, as we mentioned earlier, I've been in national park areas where fires have been prohibited and almost without fail every time someone has lit a fire. Um, yeah, and uh, 
you know, if it does get out of control, particularly in the remote areas, there's an awful lot of damage that gets done by the time they can potentially bring it under control. Um, the other thing is um, the, uh, the the distance uh, they recommend going to the toilet from water. So typically it's 100 metres, uh, but sometimes this does vary from state to state. And I've seen uh, in one instance 200 metres recommended. Oh, that's a bit of a walk. Isn't that's a, that, <laughs> that's it, a wee walk. <laughs> it is a wee walk. Um, so it's it's the sort of thing that um, it's really up to you to to use a bit of common sense uh, to leave, I suppose, basically leave the environment better than you found it uh, yourself. Or at least as good as you found it. Yeah. Now, in relation to the future of national parks, and I suppose why should we really care? And, you know, and again, if you think as, uh, as hikers and bushwalkers, this is where most of our, our walks actually sit throughout Australia uh, in national parks. Um, and it means that if we want to maintain these walks and, in fact, expand these walks, um, we need to look at, uh, at how we can best keep the national parks um, in good condition. Now, we talked about earlier about um, the all-purpose description from New South Wales about what a national park is, and it really is almost coming down to it's all things to all people, and that's a really difficult thing to manage, um, and it's a really difficult thing to understand in, in a lot of respects. So from a management perspective, trying to manage a national park that is a a nature conservation area that provides recreation facilities, um, uh, that provides um, a number of different opportunities for different people is really difficult. If it was just doing one thing, it would be much easier to manage, but it's having to be all things to all people. Yeah, I think think that is a difficult thing to manage. And I think, um, you know... Sometimes those of us who who do more um, remote hiking um, have a bit of impatience about having to, you know, drive through busy car parks or recreation facilities and so on. But we have to remember that the more visibility there is of national parks, the more people understand the value of them and the more we get to um, conserve and preserve them. And, you know, that can only be a good thing. So it's it's not for the few, it's for everybody. And the more people who experience the national parks um, will generate the uh, community uh, effort to keep them safe and keep them um, preserved. Going back to the USA, um, again, who, who originally founded the national park, they've got a, a system of national reserves like we do. They talk about national parks. They also talk about national monuments. Essentially, the funding for their national reserve system, there is very minimal amounts of funding provided. There is a large expectation on the individual parks to generate their own funding. Just like the US and just like probably every park system around the world, um, federally provided funding and state provided funding that go into these national parks is limited and getting smaller all the time. Um, And we have, if you think about the national parks in your local area, there's ones that are known really well um, and there are ones that you may never actually go to in your entire life. So, you know, there's there's things in, in remote 
central New South Wales or northern uh, South Australia or remote Western Australia that many Australians will never visit uh, but have a valid reason for being there. And they, they don't have the ability to generate their own funding. Um, you know, they, it's a bit hard, a bit like Namaji National Park, as I mentioned before. It wasn't worth uh, the costs and ongoing resources required to put someone to man or to person a boom gate. Um, uh, so that just didn't occur. In generating funding for national parks, there's a few different options uh, that will work with different parks. So the high-use parks, as an example, like Mount Kosciuszko National Park or Kosciuszko National Park, uh, they can charge park entry because of the sheer numbers that go through and they can afford to have one sitting in the boom gates uh, charging people as they go through. And to be honest, I think if it wasn't for the snow traffic, the ski traffic during the winter, um, that option might even be a marginal, marginal one as well. But the volume of skiers makes it worthwhile. One of the other options for funding for national parks these days is the private conservation organisations. Uh, and this is coming from things like the Nature's Conservancy, which buys back land to lock it away for preservation. The other thing that's becoming more common is the privatisation of walks themselves rather than large tracts of land. Um, and we've got individual companies in various states that are developing walks on private land uh, and promoting those walks. Uh, they just so happen to have really good bits of land that you know is private property uh, and that allows people to uh, 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 access these walks on privately funded and privately built um, um, uh, tracts of land. One of the things that you have uh, different in Britain, in some areas of Britain, is the ability to access private property Providing you do it, doing it in a in a, um, uh, a careful manner of walking across someone's land, so you can basically almost walk large sections of UK and not have to worry about um, going over someone's private land. Whereas in the US or Australia, accessing private property can often be viewed as trespass. It's pretty rare, isn't it, that you would, and it would only be if if there was some, um, I, I guess, um, land that jutted into the middle of a. National Park. So one example in Australia is the, the Bibbleman, or actually a couple of examples in Australia are the Bibbleman Track in Western Australia uh, and the Heysen Trail in, in South Australia that both cross private land uh, and they've just got agreement with the landowners that the, the hikers can access that land. Uh, but again, you need to do so with a bit of respect for the landowners. And presumably the numbers are small enough that the landowner doesn't mind too much if there were, you know, hundreds of people walking through every day. That might, I'm not sure that I'd be happy about that, but hey. Yeah, and, and there, have, there, have, there was actually a circumstance where, um, a, where poor behaviour by a hiker on the Bibbleman track actually caused a diversion of the track. Uh, oh, uh, and uh, <laughs> so, so what constitutes poor behaviour? <laughs> uh, I think it was a hiker expressing their their opinion on a conservation matter, which the landowner took to be took in bad uh, took uh, uh, to be in very bad taste, uh, and decided, well, sorry, if that's the way you think, you can go, go around go around my land, hike somewhere else. Yeah, so yes. it's okay. yeah. You, you may have your own opinions on this, but yeah, we, we're being allowed onto private property. You want to be careful about how you voice those opinions. 
the the private land option is one option. The state governments aren't immune from this. So we've got things like the Three Capes track in Tasmania uh, that uh, has had huge state funding. It's over $20 million in funding to resource the track, to build boardwalks, to build accommodation. Um, so as a result, you are paying an access fee of currently, I think it's $495, which is going to limit who can actually do the track. Uh, it does say that, sorry, you don't have enough money to do this. You're unable to, to access this walk. But it's a bit of a catch-22. Uh, without actually spending that money, the resources wouldn't be there. The damage to the environment would mean you'd have to limit the number of walkers, which would limit the number of walkers who can do it anyway. But um, while Tasmania is probably the the best for doing this sort of thing, spending large amounts of money on developing walking trails, the other state governments are also following suit as a way of of generating, not generating profit, but uh, cost recovery to maintain the resources. So I think there is something in here about moderating and what's reasonable and so on. And, um, you know, I don't think everything should be free, um, but, you know, maybe $495 is a bit too much. Uh, and I think it, I suppose it really comes down to what the market will bear. If if you know the three cape track is very uh, heavily subscribed, yeah. very popular. Um, uh, so it's obviously not the price is obviously not putting people off. Well, it's not putting the few people off who can afford to pay four hundred and fifty four hundred ninety five dollars. One controversial extension to this is to privatise national parks, and it is something that will, that will, will rankle most with most people, um, or at the very least, selling the naming rights. And when you think about it, we sell the naming rights to basically every, almost the McDonald's every, national national park. Yeah. Is that what we're going to have next? And, and yeah, I think it's um, there was actually an article in one of the South Australian newspapers a few years ago that did actually talk about the McDonaldization of national parks, and it wasn't specifically to do with McDonald's, but it was more about big corporate entities paying for naming rights for national parks. And I think when it comes down to it, if it's a choice between having insufficient funding and having the parks uh, fall into disrepair uh, or selling the parks off as, as, as standalone entities to private enterprise, selling the naming rights may not be a bad idea. Um, and again, what it comes down to is while we all would dislike that option, um, when it comes time to put our hands in our pocket and provide additional funding to parks and other resources, uh, through higher entry fees or higher taxes, um, how many of us will actually volunteer to do that? So um, while people will likely disagree with this, um, I think that long-term this may well be the future that we're heading down. Yeah, look, I think it's one of those vexed questions that keeps asked, keeps being asked um, about how much would you pay to protect the environment and um, people are quite generous until they actually have to put their hand in their pocket. So I think, you know, in the short term f for me, it's, you know, be willing to pay whatever you need to pay. Um, you know, if if there's a, a fee permit that you have to pay, get your permit and pay for your permit. And um, I know when we were doing Larapinta, um, there was a system where, 
you you know put a small amount of cash in a box um, to pay for your camping fees and so on, and you knew that was gonna was the deal. Um, but still, you know, so many people didn't do that, you know, and I, I think that's just a little bit disappointing as well. I mean, we were talking five dollars for a tent or something really basic. That's really us for this evening on on national parks. And I suppose what it ultimately comes down to is two things. Firstly, is look after it. Um, If you want to maintain this resource into the future and have it available to use in the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years, we need to make sure that we don't trash it and make it such an expensive proposition to maintain that no one can afford to go in there or no government can afford to maintain it. The other thing I'd say is use it or lose it. Um, If we don't use our national parks, if there's no interest, um, the state governments are likely to say, well, this is something that's sitting here, people aren't accessing it, we may as well do something else with it to to try and get a, a better use out of it. Visitation is king. It is. Content is king on the internet. Visitation is king for national parks. Okay, so again, it's... This is a topic that's been more uh, off to the side of what we're doing. But as I said at the start, many of our walks that we do are relocated in national parks. So while you might be going there just to do one specific walk or one specific activity, if that's important to you, um, make sure you you help contribute back to the, the process you, 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 that, that's there. Now, in next week's episode, we're back to our uh, bonus episode for May 2019, and that will be on my recent walk from Kyandra to Thawa through Kosciuszko National Park and Namaji National Park. So I hope you're looking forward to that. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me. Now, the concept of national parks was something that originally came from Europe uh, with British royalty having large tracts of land set, across, set aside for their... Uh, the concept of uh, was something that originally came from European royalty who had large tracts... The context... The concept of parks... Oh, Jesus Christ. All right, now we're going to look at the do's and don'ts in national parks. Sorry, what was that? You just move straight on. I say funny things and you just move straight on. (laughs) Maybe they're not so funny. (laughs) Funny. (laughs) You're going to keep that, aren't you? (laughs) 